It's our fifth week in Titus, and today we're in chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. It's a very short passage, just, uh, what does that add up to? Four verses, um, but it's powerful. It's packed with some amazing stuff in here, and we're going to see that. Uh, just as a little bit of an explanation, it's a bit of a continuation from last week. Um, as we were looking at, we, last week we saw there was a series of uh, advice or wisdom or statements given to older and younger men and uh, women. And this week the focus is going to uh, turn to both Titus and also to those who were uh, bondservants at this time, those who were slaves in this period of time. Uh, and so uh, then we're going to really see just the emphasis is found in this, this last little statement here that's going to wrap the entire uh, chapter thus far together about what it means to adorn um, God, uh, to adorn the doctrine of God, to adorn the gospel, uh, and, and to just show uh, how glorious the gospel is, uh, how beautiful it really is. And so uh, let's read Titus 2, and then we'll, we'll jump into this. So Titus 2, uh, verse 7. <clears throat> show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The grass withers, the flower fades, Let's pray. Father, we have, we have seen your gospel to be beautiful, overwhelmingly. That's why we gather here. Uh, but Lord, if, if our perception of that beauty has faded from our eyes, we ask that you would renew our, our sense of seeing just how wonderful you are. Um, and we ask that as we embrace the, the doctrine, the, the teaching of, of who you are, that you would show us yourself to be in, indeed beautiful. And that you would use us to show others just how beautiful the gospel is. Those that you have, you have placed in our paths. Uh, so God, teach us from your word this October morning. In the name of our beautiful Savior, we pray. Amen. So again, remember this is picking up on Paul giving that direction to, to young Pastor Titus. Um, and he's already explained to him um, what the gospel looks like in the lives of, of older and younger women. Um, Amy, who did not appreciate her being pointed out last week as one of the older women, uh, or also uh, applied to that of the lives of uh, younger men and women, which could be Amy. Uh, and so now we're seeing this, this teaching continue, and in verse 7, it's directed at Titus specifically as a pastor, as an elder, as someone who teaches. And it says that he is to model good works. That, that is, he is to be loving to other Christians, that he is to be serving others, he'd be praying for others, etc., etc., whatever that might entail. Uh, and we'll see that more next week, what it actually does entail. But keep in mind, this, this doesn't mean that he is to be the only one who should be doing these good works or, or the only one who is serving those in need. He is to, to be a model of it. He is to, um, you know, thus the hope is that everyone in the church will then also be pursuing these, these good works. Not as a means to forgiveness of our sin, but as an overflow of the truth that our sins have been forgiven in the gospel. 
And so the specific call on the, on the teacher's life here then is, is tied to his teaching as well. He is told that his teaching should show integrity, meaning the teaching that, that has not been corrupted. Uh, as a pastor, my responsibility is to teach you what the scriptures reveal about God. It's a very simple task. Uh, however, if I find myself primarily concerned about what you think about me, your opinion of me, uh, when I'm teaching, then there's a very high chance that teaching is going to lack integrity. If, if I know that you're going to be bothered by how Scripture speaks of sexuality or how a husband and a wife should relate to each other, or, or you know, if a, if a teacher comes to God's Word and he fears that you know, the idea of predestination here won't be received well and, and thus teaches something other than what we see in the Word of God, then integrity has absolutely been lost. Um, I've shared this on other occasions, but uh, before we began this, this church plant, John Dunning and I got in a car and we drove down to Dallas and Dallas, Texas, uh, to meet with a man whom we hoped would be a, a supporter for this, this project financially. Uh, and we shared the vision of the church and RUF, and uh, I'll never forget the words of advice that this man gave us before we left. You know, here's a guy who's willing to support huge financially, um, <clears throat> and he's been talking about doing things God's way, the right way. Uh, and then he said to us, don't be afraid to fail. And typically that's a phrase connected with big risk, right? Like do crazy things, do whatever it takes. Uh, but the way he meant it, the way he was explaining this to us was in regards to being faithful to scripture. You know, his, his point was better that we put all this effort into it and we do things God's way um, and, it, and it failed numerically in that sense uh, than that we succeed in ways that we're lacking in integrity. And to hear a man who was putting his, his money forward for that sort of thing, um, you know, tell us, don't be afraid of, to fail. Like, that was an encouraging statement. Uh, here we are three years later, and, and God willing, I hope we've stayed true to that. Um, Paul then adds to a, that our teaching should show dignity, meaning there is a gravity of what we teach that should be felt. You know, it's, it's not that, that preaching and teaching can't be humorous, that it can't be engaging, that it shouldn't grab our attention that way, but it ought not be trivial or silly or, or something incredibly shallow in that regard. And finally, he says that our teaching should prove to be sound speech. This means simply that um, teaching ought to be well-reasoned and, and nourishing to those who hear the teaching. And then, as verse 8 begins, we see the reason for all this is so that the teaching cannot be condemned. You see, hypocrisy and, and lack of integrity in pastors and teachers does damage to the reputation of the gospel. It doesn't negate the power of the gospel, but it certainly does damage the reputation of the gospel. Let me give you an example of someone who has put himself in the public eye. I don't typically like to use individuals' names, but um, in this case, it has been such a public thing already. Uh, Mark Driscoll. Many of you have probably heard of him at this point. Uh, he was a pastor in Seattle. Uh, he ministered in a, a structure that had no authority structure over him or uh, very little training, but the man had an amazing personality. He's a, a gifted speaker uh, that just absolutely appealed to the masses. I, I read his book, The Radical Reformation, loved it. It was amazing, loved it, and thought, wow, I was so encouraged by this as, as he was coming up. Uh, his church became huge. There were many campuses. It was just uh, enormous, and he began to write more books, and he traveled and speak, and um, you know, really, he was the closest thing that the church has seen to a rock star in this generation. Uh, he was a Reformed Baptist, which I thought, that's great. People are going to be hearing uh, some sort of Reformed teaching. And uh, the problem, though, was that Mark Driscoll and his teaching lacked the three concerns that Paul is laying out here in Titus. And 
Um, what was true about his life began to kind of ooze out into the ministry, into his life. Uh, we found that he was domineering, that he lacked any sort of grace to those who were serving with him and under him, uh, that he lacked integrity and, and used dishonest methods to, to push his book to the top ten list and, and to get it into the, the public eye in that way. Uh, and eventually the whole thing crumbled. Today, the church doesn't exist at all. And uh, there's no doubt that God used many of these things to bless people's lives, to, uh, to, exp- to proclaim the gospel in many amazing ways. And, and yet, in, in my opinion, the reputation that this resulted in for the church and for the gospel in a lot of ways is worse than if the ministry had never existed at all. And, and so uh, you know, I'll make clear, is there forgiveness for, for Mark Driscoll in the gospel? Absolutely. Absolutely, but his tale, as, as we look at it, is one that illustrates for us why Paul is warning us in this passage to live with, with integrity. You know, God is, is calling us to teach and to minister in such a way that, that the teaching cannot be condemned. And that's not to say that people aren't going to object to the things you teach, but that what they say about us won't be evil according to God's word. See, we see something similar in a, a passage, in, similar to our passage in 1 Peter 2.12, where he writes, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, and again, we, we, we see how our lives demonstrate uh, life in Christ, right? Uh, just a chapter later in 1 Peter 3.15 and 16, and, and there we read, um, In your hearts... Honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I was talking then about, you know, the way we live our lives and the way that relates to those outside. Uh, in verse 9 of our text, the attention turns specifically to, to Christians who are slaves. Um, the Greek word here you've probably heard before, doulos, it's one of those that gets translated to English very often. It means uh, someone who belongs to another. Uh, in fact, you know, we are often called the doulosis of Christ, that we belong to Christ when our faith is in Christ. Um, so we see it here, though, in reference to actual slavery. A couple of things to note here. First, uh, in this passage, uh, nor anywhere else in the New Testament, is... Uh, approval given to slavery as a good and great thing. However, slavery also wasn't condemned, which actually teaches us something here about the gospel that we're preaching. Um, it teaches us that uh, the gospel that we are preaching is not a mere social gospel. It's not looking to simply change the social, uh, the social conditions in the culture of which we live. There's something bigger beyond that even. Uh, so what overwhelmingly then seems to be the case here is that uh, slavery was simply a, a fact of life for them, uh, for many, you know, and, and, and Christians. And yet the gospel speaks to those who find themselves in that position of, of slaves at this point. And, and you look at that, and as much as you just feel terrible for these individuals, isn't it wonderful that despite their lowly place in society, they too can be active in the Great Commission, living in such a way that their lives commend the gospel. This gospel that has eternally set them free from sin and redeemed their souls forever, even as they live as slaves. So now the, the question for us, I think, and when we read this in this context is, you know, what do we do with this passage, Right? Uh, for instance, raise your hand if right now you are you know, currently a, a slave of another human. Yeah. 
So it's not so much that this is preaching to the choir as it is you know, singing to an empty auditorium in this case. Um, we do have a, a similar, and I stress the idea of similar, not the same situation in our culture. Uh, that is our lives as employees. Some of you have felt like slaves at times, right? Uh, you know, when you agree to your job, you're agreeing to work under an authority. You're, your boss, your manager, someone ranking higher than you in the army. Um, in a sense, your employee has purchased your time and your skill set. And so while it's not the same, how we live our lives as employees is, simple, is certainly a proper application of this pa passage for the reason that we're going to, uh, and for that reason, we're going to look at these details of this and try to apply them to our lives and in the work. Um, so let's see what we can learn here. First, it says that slaves are to be submissive to their own masters. Again, your boss is not a sovereign ruler, and for many of you, that is a very thing to be praising God for. Uh, you know, you can walk away completely if you want uh, and praise God for that freedom that you have. But within the context of being an employee, so far as you're not asked to sin, we are to submit to our bosses uh, or whoever our superior is. You see, remember, superior, or submission rather carries this, this attitude of willingness, not just in ultimately doing it, but, but an attitude of willingness to, to do what you've been asked to do. Uh, this idea has continued to, to be built upon here as we continue to read here. It says um, that our superiors are to be, uh, to, that to our superiors, we are to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Uh, again, this is the posture of agreeability rather than stubbornness. Uh, say you're working at a grocery store, right? And a couple of guys decide to, to run a football play down aisle seven, uh, which happens to be the Italian aisle, and they knock over about a, a dozen jars of sauce all over the ground, uh, and it's everywhere. And your boss says, hey, Mike, go clean up aisle seven. Some idiots made a mess, because uh, that's how your boss talks, right? Uh, Well-pleasing, then, doesn't respond with, why me? Uh, or, seriously, I did it last time. Shouldn't Sandy have to clean it up this time? Uh, you know, any of you who have ever had employees or interns or children, uh, anyone who's ever been working under you, you know what a difference it makes when, they, when someone is willing to do the job that they are supposed to be doing, uh, no matter how difficult it is, compared to those who constantly complain, constantly make, make excuses, argues, make your life difficult. Uh, you bring glory to God in the gospel when you respond well. It's simple. It's very difficult to do. It's simple to understand. Uh, in verse 10, we, we see how being trustworthy is a way that we commend the gospel as Christians uh, in a place of employment. Slaves are here are told that they are to be not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Pilfering means to um, steal, <clears throat> to take things, typically things of little value, the things that you uh, would make excuses for why it's no big deal, office supplies, uh, giving food away to, to friends, uh, you know, no big deal type things that you think or maybe you make the excuse that way. Uh, you know, how many times have we heard stories of, of secretaries who were slowly ciphering off money bit by bit, uh, believing it to be no big deal at the time? Uh, so when your boss can trust you and he or she knows or later learns that your faith is in Christ, then that endorses the gospel that has given you knew life in Christ to, to live that way to begin with. And the reason that they can trust you is to, to not steal is because you've been satisfied in Christ and you trust that God's going to provide what you need. You know, that, that shows the gospel to be as beautiful as the gospel truly is. Now, 
there is always this tempta temptation to be reactionary. You know, uh, I have a good boss, so I'll be a good employee, versus I have a crummy boss, so I'll be a crummy employee. Uh, so I want to read to you something from 1 Peter, which builds on what we see in our passage, and it reminds us that uh, we're called to be trustworthy even when those that we are under are not respectable leaders. 1 Peter 2.18, uh, there we read, Servants, uh, be subject to your masters with all respect. Listen to this. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Um, now in the case of employment, we have it much better than those who were first century slaves because we have the option of using uh, a system to get better superiors or we can simply walk away from the job and, and find another one. Uh, what we can't do, and you need to understand this, what we can't do is slander our bosses. Uh, we cannot be obstinate. We cannot purposely do a poor job in response to this. And the, and the reason that we, can't not, that we cannot do those things is that our lives are about something much more, something much greater, much more significant than what we do as a career or, or what we do to pay the bills. You see, look at our, our text. You see that last statement in verse 10. It, it begins with that phrase. This is where it kind of changes. It's going to give us some, some purpose, some reason for this. It begins, um, you know, whatever comes after this statement is, is the purpose. That phrase, so that. Um, I went to the store so that I could buy food. Uh, here it seems most likely that this applies not just to slaves, but to everything we've seen in chapter 2 so far. You know, why are we to live with self-control? Why are elders to show themselves to be models of good works? Why are wives to love their husbands and children? Why are teachers of God's word to show in integrity? And why are slaves to not argue with their masters? And so we see that, that everything is leading up to this last phrase. And do you see that last phrase? It says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God, our Savior. We are to adorn this teaching about God, to adorn the, the gospel. Do, do you know what adorn means? It means to, to make more beautiful or to show something as more attractive. And in fact, do you ever wonder why we refer to a beautiful person as attractive? It's because beauty attracts. Uh, this isn't just true of humans either. You know, you think of places, beautiful places, the Grand Canyon or the Kanze here locally. You know, it attracts people to them because they're beautiful. Beauty attracts. Um, I saw this article a while back that listed how men and women can make themselves more attractive. Uh, I'll give you a part of the list, right? Uh, it, it began with simply whiten your teeth. Apparently, white teeth are attractive. You probably agree with that. Uh, and then it said that women should smile more. Uh, that offend anyone yet? Uh, women should smile more, but men, on the other hand, should brood more. Do any of you men even know how to brood? Best I can tell, it's kind of that serious face. I can't do it, so I'll have to scratch that one out. Uh, men, you should shave your beards, although 10 days worth of stubble is apparently the absolute sweet spot, which means I'm about three days away from the sweet spot. Um, and, and for both men and women, wearing red supposedly makes you more attractive. And if you're wearing red today, you're good. Um, also, wear cologne or perfume, that makes sense. And finally, it listed one thing that wasn't physical. It said your words should be positive. Uh, that when you are positive, it is, makes you more attractive to other people. So there's some false motivation, maybe. Um, but, you know, I go through this list, and there were other things on it, and it's absolutely ridiculous, most of it. 
Um, and it's about making an individual more attractive. Um, our, our passage is about adorning the gospel. It, it's about making something else more attractive. When you think about adorning, though, it's typically a, a nuanced thing. That's the way we use that word. You know, It's taking what is already beautiful and it's drawing a little more attention to that person or that object. Uh, adorning does not create beauty, but it draws our attention to beauty. Um, we, we learn in this passage, then, that our lives either adorn the gospel or our lives... What's the opposite of adorning? Do you even have a word in your vocabulary for that? I, I found that I was thinking through this this week. I didn't know how to finish that sentence, um, you know, without using really children-type words, and that's where we end up getting to. But, uh, you know, so I, I wanted to find something compelling that was the opposite of adorning to help us understand this. So I did what anyone does. I go to the thesaurus, and I look up adorning. Uh, and, and, and so let me read you some of these results. But I want to I pair it with what we're seeing in this passage so that you can see the opposite of this if we were to read this passage um, so to turn it around, it would say, in everything, they may disfigure the doctrine of our God, our Savior. Or, in everything, they may damage the doctrine of God, our Savior. Or, spoil the doctrine of God, our Savior. Or, the one that I found absolutely most helpful in this scenario is, uh, you know, the consequences of my life, is that, in everything, they may uglify the doctrine of God, our Savior. See, to uglify is to take something beautiful and to make it less attractive. Um, so to finish the sentence we began with, our lives either adorn the gospel or our lives uglify the gospel. That's pretty heavy, huh? Um, and before we get any further into what it means for us to adorn the gospel, you need to know this much, though, because I, I think we can feel the weight of that. It's not about not messing up. You know, so, so understand that, that even when we do mess up, say you get caught slandering your boss, even in that moment, you have an opportunity to adorn the gospel by how you go to those you spoke to and repent, or, or by going to your boss and asking for forgiveness for grumbling when he has asked you to do a job that you did not want to do, uh, things of that nature. And so even as we are, we are looking at how our lives adorn the gospel, you've got to know that at no point will you find yourself in a position where God can no longer work, uh, be at work in you to display the beauty of the gospel. Uh, all this adorning is very much what we, we see Jesus teaching in Matthew 5, 16, uh, what he was getting at there when he says, in the, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory uh, to your Father who is in heaven. See, one, one, one thing it's important to notice uh, in both Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and in our passage today is that the receiver of the glory and uh, what becomes adorned is not me, it's not you, uh, it's God and his gospel. It's not the... The, the Christian, it's, it's God who is glorified, and it's the gospel that is adorned. It's not about me and you. It's about our glorious Savior in this beautiful gospel. And so here, then, is what we are learning in this passage. When you speak and behave with integrity, you adorn the gospel. You, you draw attention to this beautiful message of forgiveness and redemption. However, the opposite is true when you speak and act Corruptly, you, you uglify the gospel. You show it to be less beautiful than it really is. You know, if you demoralize your, your spouse 
or you lash out at your, your children in anger, or you, you're at war with your neighbors, you uglify the gospel. But when you build up your spouse and encourage your children and you show care for your neighbor, you adorn the gospel. Now, I think most of us can look back on our lives and actually think about individuals who adorn the gospel for us. Uh, God-willing parents are in that list, grandparents, pastors, teachers, friends, uh, people of that nature. You know, after my parents' divorce, I tell you these stories every once in a while, but I, I spent a great deal of time, uh, time in this family's home, the Wendells. Uh, I was friends with their son, David, and I basically lived there. Um, I would just walk in, you never knocked or anything like that. But during that time, they, uh, they also took in a, a pregnant teenager whose name was Patty. I was in junior high about this time. Uh, and, and she was uh, going to give up her baby for adoption and needed a place to stay during this time, and they just opened their house to us. Uh, to her, rather. Um, Patty was an absolute pain in the butt. She was ungrateful. She complained about absolutely everything. She'd fight with their actual children at times. Um, but I, I watched them. I watched the way they cared for her. And, and when David and I would come to them and complain about her, they, they taught David and I to have compassion for us, to, to help us understand the things she's been through in her life uh, and, and the difficulties she's facing. And so through it all, um, what we saw, or what I saw, was that the God that they prayed to at dinner was was real and satisfying to them, and that was the reason that they that they gave me a place to stay, and that was why they were so patient with this girl Patty uh, during this time, and their lives absolutely adorned the gospel for us, and that's that's huge, right? Um, we see this in little ways all the time as well. I don't want to make, give you this idea that it's only these huge things, you know. I was uh, helping with a Parks and Rec event last week, and we were serving hot dogs and just absolutely swamped. There were too few volunteers, and suddenly some guy just jumps over there and starts helping us. He would come to the event and suddenly start serving, you know. Uh, as we're serving and he's talking, he's talking to the other volunteers as well. I learned he's a Christian. He goes to Crestview Church uh, just north of here, and, and he saw this need, and he just jumped in. Um, you know, that's... That's one of these little examples of, uh, of what we read in our passage then when, we, when it says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. You know, be, between his joyfully serving at this moment and his openness to just talk about Jesus and his church and things of that nature, you know, he's certainly adorned the gospel specifically to these, these other volunteers who, uh, to the best of my knowledge, were, were, were not believers. Uh, so then the last thing we, we see in this passage is the focus of our adorning, right? I've referred to it as, as the gospel, and it certainly is, but I want you to notice a, another detail here. It says the doctrine of God, and that last phrase, our, our Savior. That word Savior is, is beautiful. You see, God's not your coach. He's not your example. He is your Savior. That's how Scripture speaks of God very often. Uh, Isaiah 43 uh, there we read, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And, and that passage goes on and eventually comes to a close with this phrase or this statement, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. When you think about Mary, you know, the mother of Christ, and Luke chapter 1, after learning that she's going to be the, the mother of the Messiah, she exclaims, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Um, could probably read a ton of these. I'll give you one more. Uh, the benediction, Jude 125. Uh, it's a benediction. It says, To the only God, our Savior, 
Through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory and majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now forever. Amen. And I, I hope that, that we see this in, in God's word and we realize that what we do matters. But, but only because of the simple and profound reality that what Jesus has done on the cross for us and the work that he continues to do in our hearts is real. It's real. I found this, this old journal of mine this, this week. I was digging for some stupid stuff and found an old journal. <clears throat> it was 16 years ago. I was in my third year of college at Texas A&M, and um, I guess I was writing at the, shortly after uh, being at a Campus Crusade event, and on the tables were these unlit candle holders, and uh, I paid no attention to them at all. At first, I, I was a little early, I've always been that way, um, but eventually someone came and, and lit the candle inside of it, and once it was, this candle was lit inside of it, I could see that the candle holder was this, this image of a, a person made from stained glass. Um, and that night, it, it made sense to me finally how when, when the light of Christ, uh, when the light of the gospel is in us and, and it shines, it shines beautifully. You know, we... We aren't the light, but, but we can be the, the stained glass in this regard. You know, the gospel not only makes us beautiful when Christ is present in us, but we now display the beauty of Christ to those around us. Suddenly, it's noticeable. You know, we uh, adorn the gospel in a, a way that is only possible when the true light of Christ is present in our life by grace through faith. Uh, in simple terms, you know, in child terms even, this little light of mine... I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. That's going to be stuck in your head today. Let's pray.